House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. It's February 20th, 2024, and it's time for yet another new episode of Capital Ideas. It's called that because it's the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. We've been doing this since 2009, and they haven't run out of ideas yet. Today's guest is 21st District Representative Lillian Ortiz South. She's been a lawmaker since 2014, and today she chairs the House Democratic Caucus and the Washington State Latino Democratic Caucus. We'll hear about both of those roles today, as well as some of the bills she's sponsoring and how they're faring as the 2024 session moves into its final two weeks. We recorded this at the state capitol in Olympia on Valentine's Day, and here's what we said. I'm here today with Representative Lillian Ortiz-Self from the 21st Legislative District. Representative Ortiz-Self is chair of the House Democratic Caucus, chair of the Washington State Latino Democratic Caucus, and I'm really glad to have you back. We talked last January, and we get to do it again 13 months later. Welcome, Lillian. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Last time you were here, we talked a whole lot about your role as chair of the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, That podcast is available for anybody that wants to hear it by going to housedemocrats.wa.gov and hitting the button that says media. You can also pick us up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'd like to talk more about legislation because we're at that point in the 2024 session where yesterday was the final day to get bills passed in the House of Origin. You passed three pretty significant pieces of legislation. What do you consider to be the key? I would say it'd have to be the dual language multilingual bill um, that is going to codify and make it clear that the expectation for the state of Washington is that all school districts that want to provide a dual language, a multilingual program for their students will have the capacity to do so. And we as a state will help support that. Take us into a classroom where this is being done and kind of paint a picture of how this might work. Is it just from 8 o'clock until noon, classes conducted in one language, and then from noon till time when the final bell rings, it's uh, it's in English or whatever wasn't taught in the morning? Mm-hmm. Typically, classrooms will have two teachers in them or a dual language teacher that speaks two languages or shared positions so that one is teaching English and history and the other one's teaching math and science. And they'll teach one in one language and one in the other and they rotate that um, so that students are hearing from their teachers two different languages constantly. The ideal model is where 50% of the students speak one language and 50% speak the other. 
and it's a kindergarten through fifth grade program. So at kindergarten, you can imagine they're like sponges. Brain development says that a whole nother part of their brain gets activated when they are learning another language. Uh, University of Washington has a great research project on this where they took young ones and saw and could measure the brain development as they started to speak a second language. And that part of your brain stays dormant when you don't have that. So exciting. We've been hearing from so many parents that want this for their child. They want their child to learn another language, seeing the benefits globally for their future. And then we have a best practice that says that English language learners, this is the best way because they get academic content while learning English. So in a classroom, this is what they get to do. And a student isn't being cheated out of part of their education during the day. They're getting the whole menu of language skills, arithmetic, reading, the whole ball of wax. Absolutely. And then some, because they're also hearing another language and culture and all of that. And so they are learning even more. Um, So uh, it's very exciting. I just met in a classroom with a, uh, a second grader who read me a book in Spanish. So he's an English speaker. Um, and by second grade, he was fluently reading to me in English and in Spanish. And the best part was that I could ask him questions in Spanish and he can answer them because he had full comprehension of what he was reading to me by second grade. And that was exciting. Your bill passed 90 to nothing, which to me indicates that you did a heck of a job of selling something that might have been a little difficult to get over the finish line five years ago. Yes, um, I've been working on this bill for about seven years. We started introducing it by providing grants to school districts that have been asking us for this, both in early learning and in K-5. And now the more uh, research that keeps coming up, the, uh, the more demand parents have by telling us, please, we want our child to learn a second language, the more research that comes out for our English language learners that say this helps avoid the opportunity achievement gap. We've been presenting that research year after year uh, until we got everybody on board. And this is going to be English and fill-in-the-blank, various other languages spoken by large contingents of people who live here in Washington. Correct. So it doesn't have to be English and Spanish. It will be based on uh, school board and uh, superintendent and parents and community as to what is the need in that community uh, and the interest of parents. We have some sites that do Mandarin, there's Korean, you know, so it just depends on what the community desires. I would say probably three-fourths are Spanish, but it doesn't have to be. The bill also allows for American Sign Language. And uh, the bill also allows for tribal languages. So um, that's really exciting as our tribal communities are recapturing part of their culture by teaching their young people a language that oftentimes had been lost. That would seem to be a real vital part of this program here in Washington State, more than most other states. Absolutely. Absolutely. The bill also provides for a seal of biliteracy. And what that means is that you get to be tested without taking this program. You get to be tested to see if you know another language. And for our multilingual students, they can get a seal of biliteracy that says, I I speak and read and write in two different languages. That will help them in their resume and future jobs, etc. 
we've made some exceptions for those languages that are just oral languages. Then they just need to prove, you know, that they can uh, speak the language. But how wonderful to have a workforce that can show up and say, yes, but, and actually I know two or three different languages and I have a seal of literacy to prove it. This is great. You got a unanimous approval here in the House. It has to go through the Senate and get to the governor's desk before it becomes a real law. How do you feel about its prospects on the other side of the rotunda? Well, I'm feeling pretty positive. I think um, I've spoken to quite a few senators that that have toured throughout the interim. A lot of our uh, educational facilities that have dual language programs, they've been very impressed. They've come back and have shared those stories with me. So I'm really hopeful that uh, we'll be able to get it out of the Senate and that this will be the year that we codify dual language multilingual education for the state of Washington. The best of luck to you. Thank you. Let's talk about another bill you've got that may not have been quite as warmly embraced by all the people in the House of Representatives, but you got enough votes to move it over to the Senate. And that has to do with something that I don't understand this term, farm worker transparency. Can you explain that to me in a way that I would understand it? Sure. We, here in the state of Washington, like many other states, have what is called an H-2A program. It's a federal program where if farmers don't have enough farm workers, uh, they can bring in workers from another country. Part of that deal is that they're supposed to, uh, the Department of LNI is supposed to survey the workers, what their salary is in order to set the H-2A salary. It's not supposed to compete with local jobs. It's supposed to be just in case there are not enough workers to work on the farms. We've gotten away from that quite a bit, especially after COVID, workers were not are not being surveyed. H-2A workers are not being counted. Uh, we know how many they were, were requested. We don't know how many have actually come, and we don't even know where they're at. So in terms of crisis, disasters, etc., we don't even know, like what we just went through with COVID, how many H-2A workers we have in what parts of the state, how to get services to them. And so this transparency bill is going to ask LNI to survey the workers directly to make sure we know how many are there, what kind of pay they're getting in order to set the accurate pay for our H-2A workers and track exactly exactly where they're at so that we have an idea of what our workforce looks like in this very important field, which is the field where our farmers and our farm workers feed us on an everyday basis, right? If we're lucky, they do. (laughs) Yes. These are people that have been invited to come into the United States and take certain jobs, but they're not jobs that someone who lives here is going to be kicked out of. The federal guidelines say that it is to uh, fill in when there are not enough farm workers to do the work. So part of this bill is that accountability to make sure that no one is being dismissed or supplanted. We want to make sure that people that live here, that our residents, get the first shot at these jobs. And this bill is in the Senate? It is in the Senate. And I suppose it's going to get a hearing fairly soon if it hasn't already. It is set to be exact in the, and be heard in the Labor Committee. The term pandemic has come up a time or two in this conversation already. And one of your major bills this session has to do with something that occurred during the pandemic that now could be troublesome to many people here in Washington, and apparently is, or you wouldn't have sponsored the bill. It has to do with people who are being dinged for overpayments during the pandemic and interest is being racked up. And I suppose that there are demands being made to pay this back. 
what's going on here? I don't understand how this works. Sure. So, um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, payments were made out to help people who were unemployed. And in that process, there were some overpayments made. And these are not overpayments due to fraud. These are overpayments due to mistake of the department. And in that process, the people have to pay those dollars back. But the department is required by statute to charge interest on money that is not paid back immediately. The problem is that it took the department quite a few, like 40 months, to be able to identify the the people that we're talking about. So this is just the fair thing to do. We should not be on top of everything else. They have to already pay back dollars that they didn't know they were going to have to pay, and then on top of that, pay interest because we couldn't identify them fast enough. That's not the right thing to do. So this corrects that and makes it fair and just for the people we're talking about. The word fair is key here. This does seem like the only fair way to approach this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the department was uh, very supportive of it. Uh, the department understands that that um, that people shouldn't be charged all that interest uh, to no fault of their own. And this was during the period of what's, what was called, I think, extended unemployment insurance eligibility. Correct. I want to ask you about a bill that you successfully sponsored last year that now has been maybe misunderstood in certain areas, and it's actually a bill that aims and succeeds in doing good things, but if there's misunderstanding about the law, there can be confusion. And that has to do with with your bill concerning fentanyl, and specifically families where this is a problem with the fact that the parents are using a very dangerous drug around their kids. Yeah, so actually the bill was the 1227 Keeping Families Together. It was a bill that moves our child welfare system um, to a more equitable place that doesn't remove children merely for the fact that they're in poverty um, or their substance abuse or homelessness, but does a comprehensive evaluation and determines what services, uh, what families can benefit from services and resources without removing the child. Um, and that the child has to be in imminent danger. Um, it really is a government overreach to think we can just remove children that are not in danger. That was the purpose of our child welfare laws, right? To prevent danger. Um, and I think um, throughout the years, this is, you know, our child welfare system has been in existence for over 100 years, um, and not much has changed. And so there's sometimes an overreaction. Um, so this law has been very successful in reducing the inequities of uh, black and brown and native children being removed, because now um, instead of a quick judgment on what might happen, um, we put services and resources in place, and then we react if, if something is wrong. Uh, If a child is in danger or in severe neglect, that's when it is our responsibility as a state. This helps reduce the trauma that children and families, generational trauma that they have been going through. For example, the statistics came in that 30%, one-third of the children that were removed by the department were returned in 30 days because there wasn't sufficient evidence to keep them out. They were not in danger. So, but the damage that has been done in those 30 days is astronomical. They will never get over that. Being removed from a parent for 30 days, parents losing their child for 30 days, that's the kind of thing we want to avoid. However, fentanyl has hit our communities, and it's a very um, 
lethal drug uh, and causes all sorts of concerns. And so in the state, we have quite a few judges that have been removing children because of the lethality of fentanyl. But we've had a few areas where uh, the courts have been a little concerned about whether or not that was imminent risk, whether or not it was dangerous enough to remove. And so we, uh, we have a bill that has passed the House and we heard from the Senate this morning um, that has a good path forward to help clarify that, to help clarify the lethality of fentanyl and that that is to be taken very seriously just to make sure that there's no gaps. We want children to be safe in the state of Washington. We don't want uh, children removed unnecessarily if we could put services in. But absolutely, we want children to be safe. And we're going to continue to refine and fill in the gaps if they're needed. I want to ask you about your role as chair of the Washington State Latino Democratic Caucus. That is a significant caucus. A lot of people might not understand that within the House Democratic Caucus, there can be the LGBTQ caucus, the Members of Color Caucus, the caucus that you are the leader of. Tell me what your role is with the Washington State Latino Democratic Caucus. Absolutely. I am so honored to be the chair. Um, you know, when I came to this legislature, I was the only Latina that was here. Representation matters. And even though my constituents in my district are not, I do not represent a, a majority of Latino um, district. Uh, my uh, my district actually uh, doesn't have very many Latinos in it. But as a Latino woman, you can't step out of that role. And so um, Latinos from all over the state, of course, see themselves here and then start sharing their concerns with you. And we know that uh, it's a community that has uh, been underrepresented here in the state house and in Washington often doesn't have a voice. So um, I am so proud to see say that now we have 11 members in the House and Senate. We have eight in the House and three in the Senate, and we carry the burden of making sure that their voices are heard here as well. So we represent our constituents. Uh, they are foremost in our minds, and we represent the Latino community and their concerns, just as the same way that I'm a woman uh, and a mother, and I represent women's issues, and I represent mother issues and parent issues. And, you know, um, you come here and we're a citizen legislature and we represent everything uh, about our life experiences and making sure that that those experiences, stories, life um, stories that sh are shared with you within your realm are, are shared here as well. And as a educator and a school counselor, I bring all those stories with me as well. I can't tell you how proud I am that uh, we had enough members to form the Latino Democratic Caucus, and there are 11 members in our state house. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Now let's move to another chair that you sit in, just briefly before we stop here, and that is you're the chair of the House Democratic Caucus. Yes. It is the largest House Democratic Caucus majority in several years. This is a big bunch of people. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and that means a lot of work to make sure that all of their voices are heard. You know, uh, my job is we hold what we call caucus or meetings three times a week to identify uh, all our bills, to brief our bills, to discuss what's important to us, and, and to determine an agenda of how we're going to go out on the floor. How are we going to take these bills forward? What are we going to move? What are concerns of members 
in in regard to every single bill that we're going to vote on. And my job is to make sure I facilitate those meetings in such a way that all of our members get heard, get their questions answered, and feel like a part of that caucus, and more importantly, that that they get the answers that they need before they take a, a serious vote. It seems like it'd be a tough job because by the time a person is elected to a significant office, like being a legislator in a state, they're not shrinking violets at that point. And there are people with opinions, and it would seem like 58 people in one room, 57 of them aren't you, and you need to basically keep things running smoothly. Absolutely. But, you know, um, I think what unites us are our democratic values, because at the end of the day, it is those values of fairness and justice and equity and working families and making sure that uh, families have what they need to be successful. Things like education and housing and food security, all those things that are so important to us as a caucus, that's what unites us. Sometimes the way to get there, we wrestle that out to make sure it's the best policy. But at the end of the day, we know that it is those values that are going to keep moving us forward. I can't think of a better way to end this podcast. But I will ask you, is there anything we haven't brought up here that you would like to talk about? No, I, I, I think we're good. I just can't be um, prouder to represent our members, our caucus. I'm very proud of the work we just finished doing. It's uh, always an honor to serve in that capacity. Representative Lillian Ortiz Self, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm grateful that at a pretty busy time here in the legislative session, you gave me a half an hour of your time. I appreciate it, and thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that's another episode of Capital Ideas for the Archives. We'll be back in a couple of days with a conversation featuring Lakewood State Representative Dan Bernoski, who presides over a fair amount of House floor action as Deputy Speaker Pro Tem. In the meantime, if you haven't subscribed to Capital Ideas, you can do so at all the usual places, or you can head over to housedemocrats.wa.gov and tap on the media button at the top of the page. What we talk about here is your state government, and what happens here matters. The more you know about it, the better you can make it work for you, your family, and everyone you care about. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.